This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late-night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Good evening and welcome to America at Night with me, Rich Valdez. Give us a call at 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. That translates to 833, the number 4, and my last name, V-A-L-D-E-S, 833-4-VALDEZ. Of course, you can always call our legacy number as well if you have that stored in speed dial. Go right ahead. Now, uh, I welcome you to the program tonight. It's Tuesday. It's a... It's an interesting news day today because there's a lot uh, to talk about. There always is. But I, I try to go beyond a little bit beyond the substance of things and get to um, more of the, uh, the the common themes that we see, right? And one of the common themes that I see here is that, A, we have a, an issue with the media. And uh, we have an issue with the media. We have an issue with mental health. We, we have an issue with... Um, information literacy where people just aren't really paying attention to history and to just what were once agreed upon facts are now, you know, hotly debated things because truth has become so relative. Uh, but in a bit of the news earlier today, I, I don't want to be, re- I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that articles of impeachment were filed against Alejandro Mayorkas, the secretary of Homeland Security. And uh, this is, to me, again, is just one of those things where you say, okay, so McCarthy got sworn in in the 11th hour on Friday night, something like midnight, uh, so Saturday morning technically, and we did that live on the air here, which is really fun. And um, then uh, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday comes, and they took action to vote to rescind the funding, billions of dollars for 87,000 new IRA, IRS agents. Now today we see that they have now um, – put forward these articles of impeachment. Now, of course, there's going to be a vote, and it's got to get out of committee and all that stuff. Uh, but to me, it seems like uh, the new speaker in the Republican majority is coming out swinging. Everything that he said he was going to do, he's been doing. So, uh, so far, so good, right? I think we, it's important that we look at results and not uh, constantly tarnish people and say, oh, my gosh, he's a rhino, can't stand them, blah, 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 right? I think, uh, take it easy. Let's take it easy and see what this guy can bring to the table uh, because I think these are, these are good things. Anyway, back to the themes I was talking about because I think these are interesting, right? It's interesting that we have these, these themes. And there's an article, right? And this article, let me see if I have it open here, and I'll share a little bit with you. But it was fascinating to me because th- these are things that once – we may not have read, right? Listen to this headline uh, a couple of days ago, New York Post. I meant to talk about it, but uh, I flagged it and I never got to it. Parents say their kids were brainwashed at school and they're seeking what? Deprogrammers. This is the parents. 
Beth Penske is a 54-year-old single mom from New Jersey, and she's ashamed to say that she doesn't have a relationship with her kids. But she saw a story in the New York Post in November about a, another student at a different school who claimed that she'd been totally indoctrinated into hard-left ideology at the school where she was and wanted to be deprogrammed. So when Ms. Penske saw this, she said, you know, I realize I'm not alone. I saw what happened to her was similar to what happened to my kids. And she says that she's never even considered trying to find a deprogrammer. Didn't know they existed. I just want to take a quick moment to say myself and so many others in the business and talk radio, we tried to deprogram every day against the crazy Marxist left. But I digress. Anyway, she says, I, I think it's too late for her and her kids. They won't even talk to her. Now, uh, the story goes on and goes on. And I'll, I'll share this on social media at Rich Valdez with an S, by the way, if you want to take a look at it. I'll, I'll tweet it out uh, and put it on the other socials uh, during the break a little bit later. But she says the emotional stress is unbelievable. And she didn't want to be, uh, you know, she didn't want to go into more of it. But there's other moms that are chiming in on this as well that want someone to help deprogram their uh, their children who were, in their opinion, indoctrinated. Now, there's a, a <laughs> there's a website called The Deprogrammer, and it runs a YouTube uh, account under the handle The Deprogrammer and works with parents and their children individually on such deprogramming. A woman named Kay Yang, 36, she's a former activist for trans and gay rights in upstate New York, at one point identified with they-them pronouns, but now she's deprogrammed herself, and now she's a full-time deprogrammer since 2018, and she's busier now than she's ever been. Now, this uh, Yang leads the anti-gender ideology protests at gender clinics and prisons, as well as the National Monument in Washington, D.C. So anyway, the point is more and more people, I guess, are becoming awakened to the, the idea that truth is not really relative. And, and I think this is something I try my best to not, I don't want to say fight against, but if you want to use that word, that's fine. Uh, but I want to inform as many people as possible. The truth is not relative. Truth is something that is real. And we have to have an agreement, right? If you're going to have a conversation with someone, you have to agree that we both have our feet on the floor, right? If the other person says, no, no, I've got my feet on the ceiling, right? And I'm being, you know, ridiculous here, uh, taking the argument to its... Um, logical extreme, which is kind of crazy in this instance, but it's important to do that because you got to test the theory. And that's exactly what happens. So I think it's interesting. And I want to talk about that because I think not only do people rely on the media one way or another, whether it's entertainment media, news media, uh, print journalism, television journalism, commentary, radio commentary, whatever, what have you, podcasts. By the way, check out uh, our, our podcast when you can and subscribe both for This Is America, my podcast, and for this show's pro, uh, podcast, America at Night. I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe to those. But people rely on people for information because good people like you, good Americans like you, are out there doing work, right? Being nurses, being doctors, being lawyers, being truck drivers and plumbers and pipe fitters and air traffic controllers and flight attendants and teachers and all, all sorts of things, bakers, butchers, candlestick makers, and when people are out there doing things, driving a truck, pushing a big rig, climbing a pole, doing whatever has to be done to pay the bills and so that we can have what we need when we go to the bodega, to the grocery store, to the supermarket, these things are critical. That's how our economy goes around. That's how we uh, live our lives. And that's why people tune into shows like this and others. 
because they say, you know what? I want my daily dose of of the news. I want my daily dose of what's going on in pop culture and entertainment here, there, and everywhere else. And I, 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 you know, I can't sit there and keep my eyes peeled all day long or read every page of the newspaper. Who even reads newspapers anymore? So my point is, people get sucked into this, and they get sucked into the media, and then it starts to spur mental health issues. And the next thing you know, people are ill. And, and I think a lot of this comes from the media. And um, and this is not anything um, that I, I'm saying that's new. I'm just saying I think it's important that we talk about it. And who's responsible for this? Who's putting their money behind these propaganda efforts? Who are these people? Where is the money coming from? And we're going to dig into that in a moment with our guest, Brent Bozell from the Media Research Center. He's going to help us make sense of that. Then we're going to have a really frank conversation on mental health uh, a little bit after that. Plus, we're going to talk about important history uh, because we shouldn't forget our history. And we've got a really good discussion on that coming up. So I want you to join the conversation. Our phone number again is 833-482-5337, 833-482-5337, or 833, the number four, and my last name, Valdez, and that's Valdez with an S. Don't move a muscle. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. I am Rich Valdez at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And I'm looking at a quick search. I just put media news into the uh, search engine and I see a several articles. One of them says the media is going to be cutting jobs and that's jumping by more than 20% in uh, 2022. And that's uh, according to a new study that came out. Uh, then there's uh, other stories about how the media is ignoring reporters' questions about classified documents for a second time at the White House. And it seems to me that there's constantly a, a double standard in the media that I think we talk about often. But it seems that there's also a push to create a new narrative, to to push this new version of truth that is relevant to somebody, but not everybody. And my question is always, who, who are these boogeymen? Who are these bad guys? You know, years ago, they used to say it was the Koch brothers pushing the Republican agenda. And for years, we've heard the name George Soros. But I think there are others. And it's not like he's given up, right? I think George Soros is doubling down. And thankfully, we've got the Media Research Center doing the amazing work that they do, uh, being a watchdog on the left wing media and uh, the head of the Media Research Center, Brent Bozell, is with us. Brent Bozell, welcome, sir. Rich, how are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for joining me live and late night. I know some people like to sleep at this time. So <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> like it that you're here. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about this because you guys do amazing work. Uh, not only, you know, the, the tidbits that you put out on social media, you know, uh, that's, that are funny and informative, but you do, you know, some more in-depth stuff and, and lots of tracking of things. And I want to get a sense. I know you have uh, some some new pieces that have come out. Uh, with respect to the money that's being sent uh, into the media sphere to influence it and where it's coming from. So tell us about that. Well, when when you think of um, George Soros, you think of money and money going into leftist causes, and you should. Um, this is the man who's reportedly put $18 billion into his Open Society Foundation. Now, uh, just so that people understand the perspective here, uh, a foundation of that nature must, by law, spend at least 5% of its corpus every year. 
That, folks, is $900 million minimum that George Soros alone, not Mark Zuckerberg, not Warren Buffett, not kind of an alphabet that soup of people out there, but just George Soros, we're talking about $900 million alone. So if you look at his political giving uh, in the last election cycle, surprise, surprise, the single largest donor to liberal democratic politicians and causes. But what we looked at was his nonprofit giving, which is in the in literally in the billions of dollars worldwide, putting in a billion dollars into these universities he's creating worldwide. But he's also touched something else. George Soros understands the power of media and understands the power of communications. And he has opened up his checkbook and he's writing checks. Um, and to, and it, we, we have seen so far between 2016 and 2020, we've been able to identify $131 million that George Soros has put into nonprofit media operations, both in the print, in the print media, on radio, television, social media, all trying to affect public opinion and affect the culture in America. That, by the way, is more money than is spent to overthrow governments in Central America. It's, this is um, remarkable to me. And again, it's not remarkable that some rich guy is trying to influence media or influence politics. That we see a lot. But to this degree, and I don't think it's that because he's got more money than everybody else, because uh, it, it, quite frankly, I think you've seen Elon Musk by Twitter, and I don't think he's trying to, um, you know, control the narrative. I think he's trying to um, let free speech be the way he views free speech. Uh, but in Soros's case, it seems like he's doing everything he can to make sure that he's telling only one side of the story and uh, and obviously getting the right people elected. And that nope. part is the, the most detrimental part in, is what I'm trying to say. So yeah, uh, no, no, no. what do we do from here, Brent Pozell? Well, no, no question about that. I, I, I would say he's the antithesis of Elon Musk, in that Elon right. Musk bought Twitter to open Twitter to 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 free expression. George Soros is putting money in the media to affect public opinion. He he has got a definitive liberal spin. Now, this guy, you know, I I I, I saw an interview he gave in Newsweek uh, just a few years ago. He was asked. What his goal was, what his ultimate goal was, Rich, it frightened me to hear his answer. Hmm. I want to change the arc of history. Think wow. about that. Think about that. Uh, Madmen do that sort of thing. And he doesn't uh, mean by making man, history with his achievements. <laughs> no, right? He's no, talking he's about changing the past. This, 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 this man is a, um, uh, a fanatical anti-Christian. Um, he's a fanatical anti-American. He's fanatical in how he hates the bedrock of this country. He's funding anything that undermines it, whether it is Black Lives Matter, whether it is terrorist organizations, and I mean terrorist organizations and terrorist leaders. It is funding all manner of anti-Americanism. This guy wants America brought to its knees. And I mean that. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm quite open when I say that and quite honest when I say that. When you look at every cause imaginable, if you have riots in a city, he'll put a defense fund up. He, he will teach 
CRT. He will teach transgenderism. This will, this this man had. There's not a leftist cause this man hasn't been at the front of. And you and and when you've got when you've got 18 billion dollars, you're putting into the process. That's the kind of thing you want to do. Yeah, this is crazy. And, and you know, it's interesting because again, we, we've been hearing it for years and years and years. George Soros this and George Soros that, and it seems that he's just. Do, he's outsmarting everybody that's trying to stop him, and it, it, it's painful. It's not hard when you got eighteen billion, but he's brilliant. The man is brilliant. Uh, try to keep up with him in an interview sometime. Um, uh, I don't know where this man is is coming from, but I do know what he wants to do. Uh, and 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 uh, you you have to dig deeply to find what he's doing. For example. Who's ever heard of a global outlet called Open Democracy? Well, it's rather huge. It received one one million six hundred thousand dollars in a four month period. Among other things, it justified this this outlet justified Palestinian terrorist rockets being fired into Israel as a quote necessary counter discourse to what it dubbed a quote colonial power. In Israel, that's the agenda. That's the political agenda of that group. How many people have heard of Project Syndicate? It's another global outdoor mm. source funds. What does it publish? Among other things, it publishes the propaganda of former Iranian president and anti-American extremist Hassan Rouhani. This is this person said in a column that was in Project Syndicate, funded by George Soros, he threatened further conflict with the U.S. This is what I mean about him funding violent anti-Americanism. And and the the list goes on and on of leftist organizations that George Soros is getting behind with his nonprofit. Yeah, that's crazy. Folks, I want to remind everybody, we are on with Brent Bozell from the media Research Center, the MRC, they're fantastic. Uh, check out their work, uh, Brent Bozell. Um, in the um, in the next segment, I want you to continue this story, and I'm going to have a couple more questions for you. But before we hit the break, I want you to let everybody know how they can follow the work that you guys are doing at the MRC. Well, uh, I would say come to Newsbusters, uh, newsbusters.org. Uh, that's one of our organizations, cnsnews.com. Uh, is our news operation. Those are the, the, the two primary ones. But come to newsbusters.org or cnsnews.com. Yeah, and I can vouch for those. I go to CNS News all the time, and I check out Newsbusters probably twice a day because they just put out so much interesting content that's very valuable. So check them out. Uh, and uh, give uh, Brent Bozell a follow, at Brent Bozell on all of the social media. Now, straight ahead, we're going to get into the rest of this conversation on how George Soros is bankrolling different groups, and a little bit of uh, Brent Bozell's reaction to what's going on with the media, just ignoring all of this Biden stuff related to classified documents. So don't go anywhere. We're with Brent Bozell. I am Rich Valdez. More to come straight ahead. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. America at Night with Rich Valdez. Clearly, there's going to be some political concern here. The president gearing up for a potential launch of his reelection campaign. And now you have hanging over them uh, this legal cloud. But it was interesting and I think important to note that White House advisors at the highest levels would have known that this issue was ongoing for at least two months, given the timeline we were given from the White House yesterday. And so I think one of the questions is about why they've waited for this story to sort of break in the news on its own uh, versus being fully transparent, disclosing this as soon as it happened two months ago. So why hasn't the White House been transparent when they had this information two months ago? I don't know. But our guest is Brent Bozell, founder and president of the Media Research Center. Uh, Brent Bozell, what say you? Um, Why? Uh, For the same reason that that guy uh, Shrek smirked when he testified before the Benghazi committees for the same reason that James Comey felt he could wiretap the president of the United States to try to entrap him in the Oval Office for the same reason that Hillary Clinton thought she could bleach computers in, uh, uh, what's his name, at, her name at the Lois uh, Lerner, thought, thought she could destroy IRS computers. Why? Because they believe they can, because they won't be held to account. A Republican sneezes, a conservative hiccups, and it's going to be on the front page of the Washington Post. But Democrats and and the left can commit all manner of heinous activity, corrupt activity, and I believe illegal activity, and they get away. They've gotten away with it since the time of Clinton. And I don't mean Hillary. I mean Bill Clinton. So uh, why does the White House, why is it so brazen? See, I don't believe, Rich, my, my opinion, I don't believe that uh, what what they did, uh, what, what happened was altogether wrong. I think it was careless. I think it was reckless. But I'm going to take that face value that when they discovered it, immediately they called the archives. It's always, it's never the crime. It's always the cover-up that gets you. What they should have done is made that public at that moment. Instead, they held on to it until after the election. They did this with Trump. They did this with Russia collusion. They knew what they were saying was not true. They knew that the Steele uh, dossier was fake. They knew all these things, yet they didn't report it. Let's try Hunter Biden for a second. Isn't it interesting, Mitch, that one year after the elections, the New York Times will come forward and say, you know, we ought to have covered this. And the Washington Post came forward and said, you know, we ought to have covered the Hunter Biden story. What do we know about the Hunter Biden story? These, this is fact. You can say, well, was the election stolen, blah, blah, blah. You can argue that at some time. But let me give you a fact of life here. We did mm-hmm. a survey of the, in the seven contested battleground states of Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, 
Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, and Michigan, we asked a series of questions to Biden voters. Did they know X? And if they didn't know X, and we told them, we then asked them, would you have voted for Biden had you known this? And we got the percentage of said they would not have voted, and you put it across the states to see how it would have affected the race. In every single case, uh, Donald Trump would have won the presidency. But here's the big one. We asked Hunter Biden. Now, if you were to ask a conservative, if you were to ask anybody on your radio show, every single person would know what the Hunter Biden laptop story was all about. On election day, when the Democrats went to the polls, a full 40, I think it was 49 percent of Democrats had never heard of Hunter Biden. Let me repeat that. Almost, almost just it was almost exactly 50 percent had never heard of Hunter Biden when told about the laptop story. We asked, would you have voted for Joe Biden? Nine point four percent said they would not have voted for Joe Biden. You put that nine point four percent across those seven battleground states. Donald Trump would have won Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania. Wisconsin, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, he would have won every single battleground state. He would have won 311 electoral votes. And now we know that they were covering, and we did studies showing how no one in the networks were covering it, which is why Democrats didn't know about it. And now we know Mark Zuckerberg has admitted that he didn't cover it because the government pressured him to censor right. the story. And now we know from the Twitter files that Twitter was doing the same thing. There has to be such an investigation into this deep state, into all these federal agencies that worked overtime to tell everybody in the news media, don't cover this story. It's Russia collusion. Rich, it was nothing of the sort. It was mm. truth, and they knew it was truth. Well, and this is where I think we um, we have trouble, right? And folks, we're, again, we're on with Brent Bozell, uh, founder of the Media Research Center. Uh, Brent Bozell, when, when we have a situation today, and I mentioned it in my opening comments, where I said we have this problem where the truth has become so relative to people where some people say, well, that's your truth. This is my truth. Uh, it used to be, at least when I was younger, and I'm only 44, but <laughs> when I was younger, we agreed on the truth, whether we disagreed on certain facts of it. And I feel like, how do we proceed if we can't agree on the truth? Chris, <laughs> please explain this to me. What the hell does my truth mean? There's <laughs> <Right>. no <laughs> such thing as right. there is truth and there is not truth, but there's no such thing as my truth. This is the moral relativism mm -hmm. we've sunk into, which, which, which I can say that black is white and therefore it's white. I can say that cold is hot and therefore it's hot. I can say that a male is a female and therefore it's a female. This is, this is man being God and man, man saying the laws of nature don't apply to me. I now have my truth. Well, among other things, that's going to get you condemned to hell in one way or the other. Yeah. You, you, you can't play that game. There is truth and there is falsehood. And there, there, there is good and there is bad. There is right and there is wrong. And we, we have to come to grips with this. I think there's a fundamental illness in our society that we simply don't want to accept things. I think we are so polarized that nobody wants to look at, at things with an open, objective mind. You're, you, you, you've made up your mind about Donald Trump, and you've also made up your mind about Joe Biden. But then you've got to look at some of these things, and you've got to say to yourself, 
so. It is inescapable that the Democrats tried to steal the 2016 elections with a false collusion story. It is inescapable that they tried to impeach the president based on falsehoods. Mm-hmm. And now it is inescapable that they stole the election. The media stole the election in 2020. It, these are inescapable truths. And now we know that they tried. I mean, they, it, it isn't that grand a theft. But here they go again, trying to affect the 22 elections. This is this is the grand conundrum. Brent Bozell, it, it has been a pleasure. I, I could stay on with you f- for another hour because <laughs> there's so much to discuss. Um, I could probably only squeeze out another. If, we, if I could get another segment with you, could I pressure you into staying for another segment? Sure, sure. Oh, I love it. Nothing like live radio to add pressure. All right, folks, so stick around. We're going to take this quick break. We're on with Brent Bozell. We're going to wrap it up in a moment. I have a couple more questions because I think it's just uh, such an interesting state of affairs in, um, in our media and really in, in society today. Don't go anywhere. It's Brent Bozell and me, Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez here with Brent Bozell, founder of the Media Research Center. And Brent Bozell, as we're looking at what's going on with the state of moral relativism running amok in our society with uh, the left within the media, really, uh, I think just they're uh, they're probably at full strength. You know, maybe years ago they were at 50 percent strength. Now they're at full strength with having all of their indoctrinated uh, soldiers, you know, from from academia now serving in the trenches in the media. And, you know, you and the other culture warriors that are out there spearheading the truth, it, it becomes a, a battle for, I believe, not only for truth, but for the, the heart and soul of this country, because we're getting lost and mired in misinformation, disinformation, not to mention that of what we receive from our foreign enemies. What, what do you think happens from here? Does it get better? Or does it get worse? Well, you know, I never thought in, in 35 years uh, doing this, I never thought that I would utter the words, I long to the good old days of Dan Rather. Uh, uh, but I do. Uh, you know, I, I, I look at the media um, 30 years ago, and we were talking about a liberal media bias, and it most certainly was. But 30 years ago, there was, even in the, in the most extreme cases of bias, there was a, it was the bias by commission where they put a liberal spin on the news that they were reporting. What you have now is something far more nefarious. Mm-hmm. It's the bias by omission where they don't, where they simply don't report news that doesn't fit in, into, into their leftist narrative. Talk about uh, your, your own truth. Talk about uh, weaponized. The media today are, or the news media are open, openly mocking the idea of objectivity or fairness or striving for truth. That's not what the media today believe in. When was the last time, Rich, when was most last time you heard someone in the news media call himself a reporter? They don't because yeah. a reporter reports. They are journalists. Journalists can be anything you want them to be. When was the last time you heard a journalist say they were objective? 
<laughs> Objectivity is something they don't even pretend to be supporting anymore. Can you, can anyone deny their hatred of Donald Trump? I don't care what you think of Donald Trump. You too may, you know, out there, you may hate Donald Trump as well, but you're not a news reporter. And a news right. reporter is not allowed to hate somebody. We did, we, we looked at the coverage of, of Trump throughout his presidency. And I can tell you, Rich, in, in, in 35 years uh, looking at the media, I've never seen anything like this. Not even Ronald Reagan got the, this, the kind of treatment that Trump got. Month after month, year after year, the negative coverage was mind-boggling. You know, after you're in your first month of office, office in January of your first term, it's always called the honeymoon. And that's where the media fawn all over you. You know, they were talking about the pigeons crying overhead while Obama was being inaugurated. Uh, I mean, they, they just, <laughs> they, they, they went mm -hmm. to town on it. Donald Trump got the best coverage of his presidency in his honeymoon month. 83% negative. Mm -hmm. That was the best in four years. We looked at it month after month, 97%, 92%, 96%, 99%. We saw one month where it was 100% negative in the news media. Think Amazing. about that, folks. Let that sink in. 100% negative. Now, what does that mean? If you look at the... If you look at the White House uh, report every year, you know, they, they will put a, they put a spin and an alphabet soup of accomplishments that they've had. If you looked at the Trump accomplishments, they were mind-boggling. Bullet point after bullet point after bullet point. You know, bullet point number 32 moved, mm -hmm. uh, moved embassy to Jerusalem. It's just a bullet How point. How dare he? Well, yeah. So, so when, when you're looking at 97, 98, 92%, uh, what are you looking at? You're only looking at 3%, 2%, 7% positive. So all the accomplishments of his were being ignored. That's why we took this polling. In. We asked the public, we asked the Biden voters, did you know that 11 million jobs had been created in the three months before? Did they know that we were at annualized 33% GDP? At the time of the elections, we asked, did you know that Kamala Harris was had a voting record that was to the left of Bernie Sanders, a socialist? We asked, like, they knew nothing about these things because they were not going to report the Trump, anything that Trump was going to support that, that, that was going to hurt the narrative. They were not going to give it airtime. They were not going to put it on on pieces of paper. This is a media then turn around and look at the American people and they say, but we are the news media. No, they're not. Wow. Brent Bozell, I look forward to joining you on one of these really cool cruises that you do one of these days because they sound terrific. Yeah, hey, I, I gotta get you on it. I gotta <laughs> we get you definitely on it. do, and uh, I, I look forward to bringing you back. I I, I love to hear your uh, your thoughts and your commentary. You, you've been in the trenches and you're still in the trenches, and I thank you for it. You're a patriot, and we appreciate it, sir. Rich, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure, folks. That's Brent Bozell, Media Research Center. Check them out at uh, the. Uh, newsbusters.org as well as cnsnews.com. You can check them out there. And there is more to come straight ahead. So don't go anywhere. Don't move a muscle. I am Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez.
is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And I want to get your thoughts on what's going on in America at night. Our telephone number is 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. Let's go to Bill in Cleona, Pennsylvania on WLBR. Bill, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Good evening. It's so good to talk to you. Likewise. What's on your mind, Bill? What's on my mind? I listen to talk shows. The first request I'd have is that your viewers get to hear me say goodbye. At the end of our conversation, we say goodbye. I call, listen to these shows, and I call in periodically, and I'm almost to a man, they will continue talking to me after they've potted me off the air. Uh, giving what their- is the point you're trying to raise today with respect to this program? With your, you know, I always liked Jimbo. Jimbo was... You know, first of all, Jimbo had been in the service. I don't know if you have a military Yeah, background. well, we all love Jimbo. But do you have a point about Brent Bozell or th- what we were discussing tonight? Yes, Brent Bozell. He was talking about how terrible it was that Soros was putting money into uh, uh, opposition to CRT and putting money into Black Lives Matter. I wanted to ask Brett if he had any black or brown friends. You know, I, I don't know what kind of friends he has, but I don't know if that matters. I think the reason that people uh, oppose these movements are because of really w- w- when we take them at face value, right? So like Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza and um, two of the three founders of Black Lives Matter had admitted, you know, on video and on their website for the Black Lives Matter International Foundation that – They were trained Marxists. And again, nothing wrong with being a trained Marxist uh, if that's what you want to do with yourself. But the bigger issue was they they made it clear that part of their issue was the dissolution of the nuclear family. And again, not anything I'm making up. This was on their website because they felt that the nuclear family was somehow uh, steeped or rooted in in white supremacist culture. That, you know, a mom, a dad and uh, two kids is somehow racist. Right. Or steeped in white supremacy. Now, this is something that, I, you know, on its face, I would laugh at it and reject it out of hand because I think that's stupid. It's silly. It's just like a clip of audio we played yesterday where a woman said that being skinny is the uh, the epitome of white supremacy because black people were more voluptuous and more curvaceous and uh, were heavier. So because of that, being skinny was related to white supremacy. Clearly, this stuff is so pie in the sky, so fake, so phony, so fraudulent that no one with a clear mind that's soberly thinking could take it seriously. But yet there are people that do take it seriously because they've bought into this because they have sipped the Kool-Aid is all I could say. So, I mean, I have friends that do buy into this. And moreover, what they buy into is the fact that they feel there's some sort of uh, inequity, right? And when there's an inequity, people get upset. And I understand that. And I'm not the one that's ever going to say there's no racism, no such thing exists. Of course that exists. However, I will say that we're not where we used to be. And I think we're only going in the right direction, uh, at least we have been over the last 50, 60, 100 years. So with that in mind, for us to go to a place where we're now teaching, you know, white kids that they should somehow fault themselves or feel guilty uh, for the success of their parents or their their grandparents or anything like that, 
I think it's not a good look, right? No kid should feel like because of their race that they're either good or bad, right? We should be somewhat neutral in that respect. And the critical race theory movement uh, definitely doesn't embrace the idea of Martin Luther King's colorblind society. It embraces an idea where you're bad if you support white supremacy because you're inherently wrong. And that's not something I could get behind. Thank you, Bill and Cleona on WLBR. More to come straight ahead. We're going to talk about an important topic regarding mental health and people that are ending their own lives. Don't go anywhere. This is an interesting topic, and I don't want you to miss it. I am Rich Valdez. We're coming right back. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Good evening and welcome to America at Night with me, Rich Valdez. Give us a call at 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. And uh, again, just a quick update on some of the news. Uh, The articles of impeachment have been filed against uh, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, The House has also approved the creation of a select committee on United States competition with China. Uh, sounds interesting. Competition sounds like an interesting word. Um, and um, new Speaker McCarthy has moved to remove uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, and Congressman Eric Swalwell from congressional committees. So more on that at the top of the hour. Uh, but I want to talk about some other stuff that I saw in the news that was really you know, startling to me. Uh I'm just looking here at, at the news, right? There's news here. This is Yahoo Sports uh, from, I don't know, 16 hours ago. Death of NFL receiver Charles Johnson ruled suicide. Uh, from an hour ago, two hours ago, NYPD officer jumps from Queens building in apparent suicide. This happened uh, t- today, Tuesday. Um, and, and they believe this is a suicide. And, and this is horrible. You know, then another one here, WBFF, LA Times, Yahoo News. Listen to this. Callers keep flooding the 988 mental health suicide helpline, right? So this is uh, cries for help are pouring into 988 in record number. And it's just, it's everywhere you look, you see these things about suicide, suicide, and more suicide. And I said, oh my goodness, you know, I'm not one to talk about these topics, um, but it's, it's a real topic. It's a serious topic. It's an important topic and one that we're going to discuss. And there's a book out right now. It's called Loving Someone with Suicidal Thoughts. What family, friends, and partners can say and do. And this is uh, written by Dr. Stacy Friedenthal. And Dr. Friedenthal joins us. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show because I, I believe that, you know, it's important to talk about this topic. And I, I, I'd seen a brief clip of you talking about a, a piece that you'd written in one of the professional trade publications for your industry and how it was geared towards other psychotherapists that were dealing with uh, suicidal um, ideation. And it, it, it really 
piqued my interest because, you know, I'm thinking that's who they're calling, right? They're calling 988 <laughs> and they're getting a psychotherapist and you've got people on the other side that are going through the same things that everybody else is going through. And, and that was where it, when it dawned on me and I said, you know, there seems to be a, um, not obviously there is a problem. Uh, but this has always been a conundrum for me. So, I mean, we have plenty of time to talk this through, so you don't have to answer every one of my questions right away, and you could take your time with them. But for me, I think, you know, wow, um, you know, how do people get here? And 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 your opinion, Doc, is there uh, an increase in this from your perspective? Are you seeing more and more people dealing with this? Is it because of the pandemic? Is it because of the economy, all of the above? What say you? Great questions. I mean, the suicide rate has been increasing in this country pretty steadily since 1999. And then we had slight dips in 2019 and 2020, but the preliminary figures for 2021 show that the rate went back up again. And in addition to suicide rates going up, sadly, um, overdose rates are going up too. And of course, some overdoses are suicides, but some overdoses are considered accidental. And overdose deaths have have just skyrocketed. So, you know, it's it's very sobering news. Yeah, it's horrible. And, and we've, we've covered a lot of this. Uh, we've had folks from the, um, uh, the DEA on to talk about a lot of these overdose deaths being related to fentanyl and whatnot. Um, and you're right, a lot of them can be uh, accidental. But I, I'm wondering, uh, with this steady increase, are we seeing a larger percentage of increase in recent years um, or, or not? Is it just maybe the media giving it more coverage or m- more of us becoming more aware of it? Uh, again, really good questions. And, and the the statistics are that we're seeing bigger increases, both in suicide and then also like in young people's suicidal ideation and suicide attempts have increased in black people the rates have increased i mean it's really it's it's you know it's yeah, sobering it's unfortunate very very unfortunate so now i want to uh kind of delve into this a little bit uh because i think the piece that you wrote was really fascinating and then i want to kind of delve into the book as well uh, but the the piece that you wrote, and it was a while back, but I, I saw a clip that really, like I said, caught my attention because you were talking to colleagues of yours that were dealing with this, and you were sharing, you know, a little bit of of your perspective on on you know what it feels like when people experience different things, loneliness, this, that, and the other thing. And, and I was hoping you could share that with the audience because I think it's a story that's not often told, and it's an important one that we should all hear. Well, it, it is. It's very important, and. And I just want to clarify with you, I mean, I think the piece you're referring to, I was talking about my own experiences with my own suicidality in the past. And I also am a therapist who specializes in helping people who have suicidal thoughts. So I can answer your question from different vantage points. And which would you prefer? Well, I, I mean, there's nothing like a personal story, in my opinion, uh, because I think that's its first person. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I think people relate to that. But whatever you're comfortable with, because, again, I saw only a short clip of it and I, I read a little bit of the caption on it. And I said, wow, that's just remarkable. And and it's uh, it's important because I think we, oftentimes people uh, don't humanize the help. Right. We're like, hey, you should go get some help. You need professional help. And people go and get this help and don't realize that these other people are also dealing with these things. Exactly. We're all human and nobody is immune to 
the forces that can lead to suicidal thoughts. Nobody's immune to suicidal thoughts. And, and so I, I, you know, I can talk about my own experience, which is that I, I first started having suicidal thoughts as a very young person. I mean, when I was about 12 years old and then I, you know, they would come and go and, when I was in high school, a friend of mine died by suicide, and actually there were two suicides within five days in my high school. In high school? When I was in high school, yeah, when I was a sophomore. Boys or girls? Boys. Mm-hmm. Boys. And I don't know if, if you're of this generation or not, but in the 80s, there was a big cluster of suicides in Plano, Texas, and mm. it was just devastating how many teenagers died within, I think, a two- or three-year period. The CDC sent people out there to study the cluster. And I grew up in Houston, Texas, and even though we were four hours apart, somehow it was always on the news. And so it was just constantly in the air, like this topic of discussion. And so, but it was still kind of distant for me. But then in, you know, in terms of my own suicidal thoughts, they were more kind of like fantasy. But then in my 20s, I had a really bad depression and had very intense suicidal thoughts and, and made attempts. And I would say the thing that has been really um, astonishing for me as a therapist is the commonalities in so many different experiences, because sometimes... I, I'm talking with people, and I'm and I'm able to observe, like, oh yeah, that's exactly what my mind was telling me, wow. <laughs> you know, because there's there's just there's uh, especially when depression is present, there's a narrative that can occur where the person feels hopeless, they feel worthless, they feel like they're a burden to other people, they feel like nothing will ever be good again, and and it's just a a very dark, despairing place to be. All right, folks, we're on with Dr. Stacy Friedenthal, uh, who uh, is the author of Loving Someone with Suicidal Thoughts, What Family, Friends, and Partners Can Say and Do. Now, uh, Dr. Friedenthal, I'd, I'd like to continue down this road. So you say you were in your 20s and there was both uh, att- attempts and, and, and continued thoughts. How did you um, work your did you get help? Did you work yourself through it? What was the outcome for you or the road? Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely got help. I, I went to a therapist, and but what really seemed to turn things around for me, and this is a controversial thing to say, not everyone's going to be supportive of what I'm about to say, but what really turned things around for me in combination with therapy was medication. Mm-hmm. Um, I took antidepressants and, you know, some people say, oh, I don't want to have to take drugs and I want to keep things natural. But if your life is on the line, you yeah. know, and, and it's something that what, what the antidepressants did for me is they enabled me to work more in therapy. You know, they enabled me to be more present and to have more hope and, and be able to put things in perspective. So, so I would say the combination of therapy and antidepressants together is what really um, turned things for me. And how long did you engage in in both uh, the the psychopharmacology and the therapy? 
Well, actually, I still see a therapist today. I mean, I've seen the same person on and off for quite a few years, mm-hmm. and I still take an antidepressant. So it, it it's a it could be a long term solution, and and lead to a very positive outcome. As I think we could uh, agree. I've been extremely fortunate. I'm very grateful. Okay, now, folks. Again, we're on with uh, Dr. Stacy Friedenthal. Now, when someone, you know, for those that are listening and who know someone, because you know that's kind of the, the 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 gist of the book is you know loving someone with suicidal thoughts. Uh, I, I've, I'm sure that there are, you know, husbands, wives, uh, family members, uncles, aunts, somebody that's talked with someone in their family or a friend of their family uh, that said, you know, I don't know, I think, you know, I'm checking out and has tried to talk them off the ledge. And I know I had a caller once that called into this program and, and was talking about how he was, you know, he wanted to, to die. And my own personal opinion, and, you know, I I prefaced it with saying I'm not a doctor <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, you, you get help and, you know, call 988. Uh, but m- my belief has always been, I think people that want to hurt themselves or end their own lives will do so. Uh, I, I don't know that there's a lot of changing their mind if their mind is made up, but that's my thought and what I've observed. I don't know how right or wrong I am in that. Uh, but I feel like, you know, I think everybody should have a little bit of a, a better understanding, which is part of why, I wanted you to come on and help us all understand when someone approaches you with stuff like this, a caller, a stranger, a friend or a family member, what, how do you, um, how do you respond? How do you, you know, what, what frame of mind, obviously you send them for help, but I guess what's the best uh, approach? And I don't want you to answer yet because I want to remind people about the book, Loving Someone with Suicidal Thoughts, What a fam- What Family, Friends and Partners Can Say and Do. And uh, the author is Dr. Stacy Friedenthal. She's with us, and we are going to continue this conversation with her on the other side of this. Don't go anywhere. I am Rich Valdez. We'll be right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're talking about a very important topic, one that uh, plagues more people than we think, and including the therapists, right? There are therapists that have had uh, suicidal ideology or ideation, I should say, and have had to deal with that. And uh, we're talking with Dr. Stacy Friedenthal who's the author of Loving Someone with Suicidal Thoughts, What Family, Friends, and Partners Can Say and Do. And she was sharing about her own personal story as well as what we can say and do when uh, we're dealing with someone that approaches us saying that they're ready to check out, that they're not happy anymore, that, you know, if this doesn't work out, then I might as well just kill myself. And uh, I think more and more people are hearing those things more often than they should and more often than they're used to. Doctor, uh, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So what, what is your best advice? And again, it doesn't have to be a short answer. We do have a little bit of time. Well, actually, we have probably about three minutes. But it, it's, <laughs> I think it's important uh, to, to kind of um, hone in on that because I think people need something to work with. Sure, sure. So the first thing I would say is to talk about it, you know, to directly ask somebody if they make some kind of illusion like, oh, if that happens, I'll kill myself, 
to ask the question, hmm, what's going on? Are you being serious? Or, you know, a lot of people, when they make statements like that, they really are thinking of killing themselves. Are you thinking of suicide? And, and, and then really listening and not immediately freaking out, not immediately saying, oh, my God, i got to call 911, <laughs> you know, or, oh, my gosh, we got to get you to an emergency room. There can be emergencies where that's needed, but most of the time, it's it's okay to stop and talk and listen. We know that about 14 to 15 million people a year in the United States seriously consider suicide, but just under 50,000 die by suicide. And I want to be careful and, and not minimize those 50,000 because that's huge, you know, to have 50,000 people in their own life. And it's also it also means that 99.7% of people who have suicidal thoughts don't act on them, or I should say don't die, because there's a larger number that do act on them and, and survive. Um, but my reason for saying this is that it's not always an emergency where the police need to be involved or, you know, where everyone needs to panic. It's a chance to really get to know somebody's story and what's going on with them and to listen and to try to understand. All right. And, and can I say mm-hmm. one more thing? Yeah, go right ahead. The, it's kind of a myth that once somebody's made up their mind, there's nothing anybody can do to stop them because there's a study that was done at, uh, of people who were stopped from jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, mm-hmm. and they were followed up years and sometimes even decades later. And 90% had not died by suicide. 90% were still alive. Wow. Well, that's good to know. It's, inc- it's encouraging. And uh, your advice, stop, talk, and listen. And ask them if they're considering suicide. I think that's a great place to start. And I think re- read the book, right? Buy a copy, give one away as a gift. Loving someone with suicidal thoughts, what family, friends, and partners can say and do uh, by Dr. Stacy Friedenthal. Doc, I thank you for coming on the show and giving us a, a glimpse into your brand new release. Here it's number one, by the way, on Amazon in the uh, coping with bipolar disorder category. Definitely get a copy or get two copies. And Doc, in the remaining few seconds we have, uh, let everybody know how they could follow your work. If there's a website you'd like to share, sure, sure. I have a website, speakingofsuicide.com. And that um, has had about 6 million visitors since I created it. So that's my biggest site. But I also have a site, stacyfriedenthal.com, and and that's where I'm going to post updates about my work and things like that. All right. And one more time on the uh, website? Speakingofsuicide.com. And then the other one is just my name, stacyfriedenthal.com. Perfect. Well, uh, everybody knows where to find you. Get the book. It's on Amazon and wherever else you get your books. Uh, Doc, again, I want to thank you for coming on board. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Now, uh, straight ahead, we're going to get a lesson in history. And again, if anybody needs help, call 988. If you're considering suicide, call 988. And we're going to get a lesson in history coming straight ahead. So don't go anywhere. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S. We're just getting started. Don't go anywhere.
now. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, welcome back. And uh, you heard the number. Give us a call if you want to join the conversation. We're talking about history. And I'm looking at Yahoo News. Uh, it says here, remains of Vietnam War soldier killed in helicopter crash are identified. This is from five hours ago, according to the Military Times. Uh, and they're just being um, identified now. The remains of an American soldier killed in a helicopter crash back in the Vietnam War were identified according to the uh, Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. Army Private First Class Thomas F. Green of Ramana, California, was the door gunner on a CH-47B Chinook helicopter flying a supply mission from one part of Vietnam to another back in 1971 when it crashed over water, according to the agency. At the time, Green was assigned to the 68th Aviation Company 52nd Aviation Battalion and 17th Aviation Group. During search and rescue operations, the remains of only four of the 10 soldiers on board were recovered, and Mr. Uh, Green's body was not among them. Uh, But three years later, divers continued attempting, and then this was unsuccessful until June of 2021 when they found some possible human remains and material evidence that was believed to be from the crash site. So they've continued checking, And lo and behold, uh, here they are, and Private First Class Green will now be buried in Ramona, California on February 23rd of 2023. So look at that. And they were able to do this through um, DNA analysis and anthropological analysis, as well as um, what they called circumstantial evidence that they found during the search and rescue mission. So uh, isn't that a remarkable story? I think it's a remarkable story that we're still finding uh, some of our fallen from the Vietnam War. Now, speaking of the Vietnam War, we have Mark Moyer, who is the military historian at Hillsdale College, and he's got a brand-new book called Triumph Regained that is about this very topic, the Vietnam War. Mark Moyer, welcome, sir. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, you know, I saw this article that I thought was rather um, interesting that it's just happening today. And and we've got your book that we were going to discuss. And it's so interesting how, you know, somebody my age, 44 years old, I only know what I learned in high school, what I've learned through my own independent research. Uh, But, you know, I wasn't alive during the the Vietnam War like some of my older siblings were. And I think for so many of us, it's just one more thing like the Revolutionary War, you know, where you read about it, but Mm -hmm. you just didn't experience it. But yet there are people that so many still today, you know, that are vets of the war and historians like yourself that uh, really are um, the experts that dig in on this. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the book Triumph Regained. Yeah, so this is the sequel to an earlier book I wrote on the opening period of the war. But this period, like the earlier one, is terribly misunderstood. And the reason I spent so much time on this subject is I think it's among the most misunderstood periods in American history. And the reasons for that are complicated, but I think much of it has to do with the fact that you had the baby boom generation coming in coming of age and not wanting to get drafted, many of them. And so when they start facing the draft, suddenly they turn against the war. And that's really colored much of our history since then. And, of course, many of these people went on to be people of great influence in the country. 
And this, uh, along with a few other things, has really colored as well our general understanding of our country because until Vietnam, most Americans had a positive view of their country. Uh, and since then, in part, part because of Vietnam, we've seen a decline. And so you see, although you know, the boomers are now aging, but they've also cultivated generations of the media who are uh, putting forward some of the same narratives. All right. And, and to, to, to kind of um, digest some of what you said, uh, th- there was very pro-American sentiments prior to, during, and there, obviously there was a lot of uh, dissent at the time. And you're saying that there's some of those dissenters are still around and we're still experiencing some of that, that negativity towards the war, which has become negativity towards America. How, how do we, um, you know, in your estimation, do, is this something we walk away from? Is it something that uh, will be cyclical and we'll eventually get back to it? Or is it just a staple and mainstay moving forward? Well, I think it's something that we as Americans need to revisit because we've received so much inaccurate information. And of course, it's just one episode in lengthy history of the United States. But you know, we as Americans and people in general look to their history for inspiration. And if we see our predecessors doing foolish or immoral things, that's going to affect how we view our country today and whether we actually want to be committed, make patriotic sacrifices, or if we just want to throw up our hands and decide, you know, I don't really care that much for my country. So we need to dig into the details and understand this conflict for what it really was and and how that should make us feel about Americans in the 21st century. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we do need to kind of dig in at a more granular level. And and, and likely this, this sentiment you're talking about or this disdain that you're also talking about uh, for the country and for the war, the uh, anti-war sentiment that, you know, remains today, uh, is likely because of one's views on the genesis of the war. You know, some people think we should have been there, we shouldn't have been there, this, that, and the other. So you're specifically writing about the Vietnam War from 1965 to 1968. Um, what is the premise uh, or your opinion or how you posit why we went to war in the first place? Yeah, so the fundamental reason, I argue, was that we were concerned about the spread of communism in Asia. And more controversially, I think, I believe that, in fact, there was a real threat there. And that's where a lot of the debate is centered. A lot of people accept, okay, yes, well, we went to fight communism, but a lot of people say it wasn't really a threat. So I look at what goes on actually in the region, which most people haven't done, uh, because what people often do is they'll say, well, 1975, when the U.S. finally leaves and things collapse, there's not uh, too much of a shift in the region. And so, so I go back and look, say, well, we got to look at what's going on in 1965 when the U.S. decided to go in. And in fact, you see China, North Vietnam, Indonesia, all moving towards militant, uh, aggressive communism, and that it's the U.S. intervention in 65 that sets them back. And especially important is Indonesia, which tends to get overlooked. But I look in detail there because there's a confrontation between the communists and the non-communists in the fall of 65. 
in which the uh, the anti-communists ultimately prevail. And I argue that that was heavily influenced by America going into Vietnam. Yeah, well put. And when we come back, I want to get um, uh, your your take on why so many people kind of see this as um, kind of uh, um, the wrong way to approach things and co- almost like unnecessary, uh, which is what I think a lot of critics of the Vietnam War um it's the position that they take. But I want to remind everybody about the book. The book is Triumph Regained. Uh, the author is Mark Moyer. He's the military historian at Hillsdale College. And there is more to come straight ahead. So don't go anywhere. He's with us until the top of the hour. And we're going to continue digging through the history of Vietnam from 1965 to 1968. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, welcome back. We're talking with the author of Triumph Regained, Mark Moyer, military historian at Hillsdale College, discussing his book, Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. And uh, there's a, a consensus that the, the war was putting America as some sort of, you know, ruthless interventionist that was wasting time with a quagmire in Vietnam. Why do you think this view is right or wrong, Mark Moyer? Yeah, so it's interesting to go back and look at how this all developed. So in 1965, when I pick up the story here, America's intervened and they turned things around. At the time America comes in, the War is going terribly for the South Vietnamese and uh, after a coup that the U.S. supported. But now, 65, America starts to turn things around. And so if you look at public opinion polling, there is strong support across the board, uh, even in the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. And you don't really see the big shift until about two years later, 1967, you have suddenly an eruption of protest activity on campuses. So question is, what happened then? Well, it turns out it wasn't really anything in Vietnam that was happening and changing at that point. What it was was that you have a change in the draft deferments, and so suddenly you have this generation of youth that's grown up in unprecedented luxury that doesn't want to go to Vietnam, and so suddenly they decide they are going to turn against the war. And so I believe that um, it's not actually the particulars of the war that much that concern them. It's that they don't want to go. And in order to justify not going, they have to show that this is a bad war. So they will go and then pull out every rationale in the book to try to explain why, in fact, this is a bad war. And so in the book, I go through and refute in detail many of those points and and, uh, and, and argue the counterpoints as to why, in fact, this war was necessary and why the U.S. actually had opportunities to prevail had it not uh, decided to pull out towards the end. All right. Now, Mark Moyer, you you also um, argue that 
this was, you know, important, right? It was a strategic necessity. Um, mm-hmm. The the other side of that coin, you've kind of weighed those counterpoints as well. I'm wondering how President Johnson's refusal to use ground forces beyond South Vietnam, how how did that influence the conduct of the war, the rest of the war? Yeah, so early on, a lot of the generals are telling Johnson that if you don't go into Laos where the Ho Chi Minh Trail is uh, and the infiltration of supplies and men is coming through, that this is going to be an endless war because the North Vietnamese can just simply keep sending in replacements no matter how many men they lose. And Johnson decides instead to listen to Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, who doesn't fully understand what's at stake here. He's listening too too much to people who think, well, this Ho Chi Minh Trail is not that important. And we now know from North Vietnamese documents that I cite in great detail that, in fact, this Ho Chi Minh Trail is, in fact, vital. And the North Vietnamese are terrified that the United States is going to go in and try to cut it. And, uh, you know, Johnson really stays with McNamara until about the final year until 68, he suddenly starts to realize that McNamara is not very well informed on a lot of these issues and he has bad opinions, but by that time it's too late. And so he will not authorize troops in to go into that. Now Nixon later on will authorize some raids into Cambodia and Laos, but on a smaller scale, because by that time you have U.S. troops withdrawing. Do you think um, if things had played out a little bit differently that we would have had a much more positive outcome? Yeah, so there's a few critical mistakes that are made. One of them is made back in 1963 when the U.S. supports the overthrow of the South Vietnamese president. And so that's why the first volume is called Triumph Forsaken, because that sets in motion mm-hmm. a chain reaction of, of negative events. But there there are certainly plenty of chances to recover from that. And going into Laos would have been a, a huge uh, boom for Americans strategically. There was also opportunities to intensify the bombing. And another of the mistakes that McNamara makes is he puts for this idea of gradual escalation of bombing and that we should, instead of hitting hard, we should go gradually. But this backfires on the United States because it doesn't allow us to inflict much damage at first. And the North Vietnamese have time to uh, adjust to it, and, and it also causes them to doubt our resolve and to keep fighting. All right. And don't go anywhere because we're going to come back. And when we come back, I want to get your take on, uh, just like it does in everything else that we do nowadays, um, politics here, domestic politics, and how that affected a, the war back then and uh, the approach that we were taking. So don't go anywhere. We're on with Mark Moyer. He's the author of Triumph Regained. Uh, the Vietnam War from 1965 through 1968. He's the military historian at Hillsdale College, and we're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. This is Rich Valdez. 
All right, America, welcome back. It's America at Night with me, Rich Valdez. Our guest is the author of Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War from 1965 to 1968. He's the military historian at Hillsdale College, Mark Moyer. And before the break, uh, my question was um, how domestic politics and uh, public opinion here in the United States uh, impacted the war and uh, your response, sir. Early on, it affects how Lyndon Johnson responds as the North Vietnamese are ratcheting things up. And he, in 1964, is focused on getting uh, elected. And so this causes him to make some rather reckless statements, such as, I'm not going to send American boys to fight in Vietnam, because at that time he's trying to portray himself as a man of peace against this uh, terrible Barry Goldwater. Uh, But he, in fact, is planning to fight for Vietnam. And when we get to 1965, uh, there is general support pretty much across the board. I said this will start to weaken. uh, In fact, both liberals and conservatives become critical. Liberals think uh, it's going on too long. Conservatives think the administration isn't doing enough. Uh, But when you get to 1968, one of the, I think, biggest myths of the war is that the country as a whole has you know, given up on the war after the Tet Offensive. But in fact, that's not at all the case. And when you get to the latter part of 68, you still have you know, less than one in five Americans actually favoring withdrawal. And, and you have a liberal wing that's pushing for disengagement, but they get overwhelmingly shunted aside by Hubert Humphrey in the Democratic uh, convention, and you see there is a famous protest at the Democratic National Convention, which mm-hmm. and suggested that maybe there's this big opposition, but and it turns out that that event actually solidified support for the war because Americans of all stripes were sort of appalled by this reckless and radical behavior at the convention. Now, one of our listeners, Art, he's listening from Culver City, California. He wants to know uh, why the United States didn't bomb North Vietnam, in particular Hanoi. Yeah, so it gets back to this idea of Robert McNamara that we're going to use gradual escal- yeah, gradual escalation. And so there's pressure mounting. And in the book, I talk about how this comes to a head in 1967 and Congress really starts pushing hard on this. And there's uh, something called the Stennis hearings, which question the administration as to why it's not doing more. And the administration sort of fend off this pressure, increases the bombing in the uh, late summer of 67. And we now know mm-hmm. that, in fact, that pushes Hanoi really to the brink of defeat. But the Americans don't fully realize this. And then Johnson eases off and the bombing and... Um, so that opportunity, like a number of others, will be lost. All right, folks. Uh, our guest uh, was Mark Moyer. And I say was because our time is up. But I want you to check out the book. Get a couple of copies of it. To give one to a friend. Visit EncounterBooks.com, EncounterBooks.com. Uh, Mark Moyer from Hillsdale College. I want to thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. You bet. All right, America, straight ahead, it's your calls on every topic we've discussed and more. Open Phone America is coming up next, so give us a call 
833-4-VALDEZ. I am Rich Valdez at Rich Valdez on the social media. And we're coming right back with Open Phone America. From the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program. Featuring interesting guests from around the world. And calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Good evening and welcome to America at Night with me, Rich Valdez. Give us a call at 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. You are welcome to give us a call and uh, join the conversation, this national conversation that we're having on multiple fronts, on multiple topics, uh, not the least of which was um, the media and uh, the craziness that's going on. Of course, Alejandro Mayorkas uh, is the target of articles of impeachment that have been um, started and filed against him, and um, there will eventually be a vote on that. And it seems to me that Speaker McCarthy is so far doing what he said he would do. And I think that's a good thing for America, a good thing for uh, Republicans who are in an interesting position uh, with a, a slight majority, but so far kicking butt and taking names. Now, speaking of Republicans... Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been locked out of her Twitter account, and that's the congresswoman from Georgia, uh, for using music from Dr. Dre, the uh, hip-hop mogul, rapper, inventor of the best headphones on the planet, uh, Beats by Dre, which he sold for, I think, a billion dollars to, uh, I think it was to Apple uh, a few years ago. But anyway, the um, moral of the story here is, is that she was using? She, I guess she shared a meme that had the um, um, Dr. Dre track. You know, it goes da 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 da, <laughs> and uh, he actually complained. And uh, the, the quote here is: "Hateful, divisive, or divisive. If you're one of those people, can't use my music." So Marjorie Taylor Greene um, fired back. You know, saying, "While I appreciate the creative chord progression." I would never play your words of violence against women and police officers and your glorification of thug life and drugs. So that's the latest on why she's kicked off of Twitter this time. It seems like she can't seem to stay on Twitter, constantly um, in the crosshairs of of getting uh, kicked off Twitter. Now, another story I want to share with you. This one is an interesting one. Fox News reporting this one. Uh, Let me see. I think this is today. Right today, let me see if there's a timestamp on it. Um, yeah, here we go. January 10th, 9.49 p.m. So just right before we went on the air, Fox News reporting that the majority of teenagers, are uh, a majority of teenagers are now reporting that consuming pornography is something that they are almost all doing. The average age of first seeing porn is 12 years old, according to this study. And uh, 15% of them said that they've, viewed porn at age 10 or younger. So um, that's uh, an interesting thing. We will dig into that a little bit. Another headline I want to mention to you is the state of Louisiana is requiring ID for adults uh, that visit 
pornographic websites saying that porn has now been declared a public health crisis by the state of Louisiana. And I'm just wondering, do you think people are actually going to be willing to provide their ID in order to log on to uh, to uh, an adult website? I, I don't know. I, don't, I, I, I can tell you that I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't say, here's my driver's license. I want to check out porn. I wouldn't want to do that. So I, I can't imagine, but this is Act Number 440, went into effect on January 1st, and it's now going to require residents of the Bayou State to provide proof of their age with a government-issued ID or a digital ID card before accessing online pornographic websites. So I don't know. I don't know how that is going to end up. To me, that sounds like it's uh, it's going to be interesting, but I'll dig into that a little bit later as well. But I do want to get to some of your calls. I know that you guys are calling in from all across the country. And um, let us go to Frank in Evergreen, Montana. You were holding on a lot the other day, and uh, forgive me for that. K-O-F-I. Frank, welcome. I'm, I'm, I want to talk about my energy bill here. I, uh, uh, we all uh, want to talk about your on. energy bill. What's going on with your energy bill? Saving a, saving a lot of money by going, getting rid of my computer and my TV and uh, going to LED lights. And uh, last month's bill was, uh, uh, oh gosh, uh, total charges $42.98. No, no, the total amount was thirty six sixty seven with the uh, energy saving. Uh, uh, but last So now winter, you said you got rid of your TV and what else? And my... Uh, uh, <clears throat> My well, I had an iMac, and uh, so your computer. Called, I'm not going to get rid of. I'm not going to buy another Apple. I'm not going to buy a uh, another. Uh, I'm not going back to Micro Warp uh, Soft or whatever. Uh, I'm just fed right. up with. Uh, now let me ask you this, Frank, because you were talking about your computer and the story that I just shared with you guys was about uh, people having to use an ID to access adult websites. Now, I'm not saying that you're accessing uh, uh, online pornography, but do you think that people that are purveyors of online pornography are going to use their state-issued ID or the real ID, digital ID card, in order to access uh, porn sites? Well, I suppose it, it, ID stands for id, and you can't get your id. I guess if something looks sexy, you're going to click on it because it's it looks like it's real because it's a, a bubbly Windows interface. It's, it's just a two-dimensional uh, uh, device, and it just makes your your mind mush. And uh, so you do think people are going to use ID, or you don't? I'm just trying to figure it out. No, it, it they can monitor your activity through your uh, through your set. It's just it's garbage. I, I read a book, but I'm going to say a year ago my energy bill was up to $180, <laughs> and the, and the temperature was a lot uh, warmer. What what was the temperature when it was warmer? It was uh, the average daily temp was 35. Right, so 35 uh, is 20, a warm day. Because I know in Montana you guys get down into the teens pretty regularly, below zero occasionally. Occasionally, but uh, last month the average. Daily tip was 21. That the average daily energy use it drops several kilowatts, and then my demand went down to 
Frankly, well, nothing. God love you, and God love everybody in Montana. It's cold, too cold for me, but I do want to go and visit. And again, I, I love Yellowstone, the show Yellowstone. And the new season's out, and I haven't had time to watch it as of yet, so no spoilers, please. Anyway, we're going to continue with your call straight ahead. Our phone number is 833-482-5337 or 866-505-4626. Either one, I will uh, happily take your call on Open Phone America. More to come straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. And thank you, Frank. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. He's brown, he's bald, and he's breaking it down. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. I was just told in my ear by our producer that Elon Musk has lost $182 billion of his net worth, um, breaking a Guinness Book of World Records uh, record that uh, of the m- most net worth lost in the fastest amount of time. So sorry to hear that, Elon Musk. I know that has got to stink losing that kind of money. I mean, I remember that time I lost $182 billion. Oh, wait, I've never lost $182 billion. I think none of us have. And uh, this comes on top of him no longer being the richest man in the world. Uh, this is bad news for Elon Musk. But we continue our journey across the country from different cities across the country. We've got calls from Dallas. We've got calls from Iowa. We're getting to you momentarily. And the uh, story I mentioned earlier, uh, this is in Fox News, United States Suicide Prevention Hotline 988 sees increase in calls, according to reports. Um, And this seems to be some of the biggest that they've seen, but cries for help seem to be on the rise. And the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, that's 988. It's kind of like 911. You dial it from your phone. That rolled out last summer. Uh, poured in with staggering numbers after its release, allowing officials to gain more insight on ways to reach more people that are in need of help. In July, the crisis uh, service transitioned from a 10-digit hotline to a three-digit hotline, which is now 988. used to be an 800 number. So this is the National Suicide Hotline Designation, Act uh, also, um, that's what authorized 988 as a new three-digit number for suicide and mental health crisis. And that was signed into law by then-President Donald Trump back in 2020. So it's been busy, busier now than it's uh, it's ever been. And uh, some of the numbers is pretty interesting. There's 200 call centers across the country, and they field over 2 million calls, texts, and chat messages. And it's uh, interesting because we had a conversation with Uh, Dr. Friedenthal earlier, who is a therapist specializing in people that are dealing with um, suicidal thoughts and feeling that way. And she herself admitted that she dealt with that for a long time and uh, and shared her story. And if you missed that, check out the podcast of America at Night with Rich Valdez on Apple. Just uh, search for America at Night or search for my name, Rich Valdez. That's Valdez with an S. And subscribe if you find This Is America, my other podcast, which is pretty much strictly commentary. You can subscribe to that one as well. 
And you can both hear the interviews that you may have missed on this program and my commentary that doesn't make it to the air because it's a little bit more edgy. But we continue with the calls. 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number, 833-482-5337. Let's go to Kenny in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, Kenny, it looks like you're listening on WHO. What's up, my man? How are you? You're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Hello, Rich. It's a pleasure to hear you work. Thank you, sir. And uh, the reason I'm calling is um, I've uh, flirted with the idea of suicide quite a bit through my life, and I've called a suicide hotline one time. I think it was affiliated here in Iowa. And the young woman on the end of the line practically dared me to do it. Which, and uh, I called a Catholic priest one time, and he got mad at me. But as far as the suicide hotline, I don't know how this girl ever got on it, but I ran this by one time, and one guy told me what better place to be on a psychopath than a suicide hotline and dare him to do it. So my point is I think it might be better just to talk to someone that loves you and cares about you than talk to some stranger, although... I can see the value to suicide hotlines. I really can. Yeah, well, thanks for for calling because I I appreciate your thoughts on this. And I think it's a good point. And I don't know if you heard the interview that we did earlier, but I was basically saying that at times I've often felt at my wit's end when speaking with someone that is suicidal because I feel like, look, if if you really want to be dead, you're going to be dead. And if you're not really trying to be dead, then you're looking for help. And then we can we can have a conversation. And I, I realize that's probably more of a tough love approach that may not be very effective. And I'm glad that we had the doctor on to give us her strategy. And part of what she wrote about in her book was this three-part strategy of stopping, talking, and listening. And, and I think that's important. Uh, so I really appreciate your honesty on it because, I, A, I agree with you with respect to having these 988 numbers and these hotlines, I think it's important. And B, yeah, you want to talk to somebody who loves you, which brings up the bigger question of, listen, you can be a jerk all day long. Many of us, you want to flip the bird at somebody, you maybe tap their bumper with your bumper in a fit of road rage, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, somebody's telling you, look, I'm thinking of checking out. You've got to be able to help people. And sometimes we may be at a loss for words. I know it's happened to me. It's happened to me on the air. But my heart's in the right place, right? And I think I got to get from my heart to, to my mouth <laughs> to, to, to share with people that, you know, it really isn't that bad. And something that the doctor shared earlier was that people feel like there's just no way out. Things are never going to change. It's always going to be bad. And I've been through despair in my life and I've been through tough times, but I can always say they, they tough times have always passed. And uh, I realized that, you know, I, I can get through things because of A, because of my faith and B, because there's people I love that I, I couldn't imagine living life without. And I think it's it's one of those things that you have to find um, that that love for and focus on. At least those are my thoughts, Kenny. Yes, sir. Now, how are you feeling now? I'm feeling good now. I'm in a good place. I'm in a good place. Thank God. And I, I listen to you every night. You're the oh, best. I appreciate that. And I thank you for listening. And, and I... Uh, I'm sorry that you've been through what you've been through, but uh, I, uh, from what I'm learning and what I'm reading and researching, there's a lot of people going through this stuff, uh, whether it's perpetual, like most of their life, or whether it's, you know, episodic, where, you know, they're thinking about it now, thinking about it later. And, you know, for me, it's one of those things where I think we have to kind of shift our focus for a moment. 
And we have to shift our focus to think of the, the impact uh, of what it would be for ourselves, for those that depend on us, for our, for their livelihoods. For There's so many people in so many different situations that I think are, are connected to people. And, and those who feel like there is no impact, there is no person, nobody will miss me, this, that, and the other thing. I think oftentimes, while some of that could be situational, a lot of it is a reality that they create in their own mind where they're saying, oh, well, they're not going to miss me. This one isn't going to need me. They don't need me for this. Oh, they can get by without me. And they start to make excuses for isolating themselves and for feeling less important than they actually are. So again, kudos to you for being in a good place in life and and kudos to you for for being um, really honest and upfront with us on this call. You bet. You take care, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, Kenny from Des Moines, Iowa. I appreciate that. God bless you, sir. And uh, we continue. Let us go to Mick in Dallas, Texas on KLIF. Mick, how are you, sir? Good evening, and uh, enjoying your new format and music and everything. It's fantastic. Oh, so I know i got you. a short time. You're welcome. I know i got a short time here, but I just want to tell you a few things. Uh, first off, with the Louisiana thing, this has already been going on for quite some time because the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which uh, gave us more consolidation with the radio station and everything else, one of the components of it was COPA, which is the Child Online Porn Act, and basically what that, or Protection Act, sorry. Mm-hmm. And basically what that is was two things. One, a person had to be 13 years or older in order to have accounts on social stuff on the web, and the other one was that the porn industry had to figure out a way to be able to identify people and that they were eight years or older. So they kind of knocked it around. They said, well, first off, credit cards would make sense because most 18-year-olds and under aren't walking around with one, but they had to find a way to be able to get those credit cards and be able to identify that these people were legit. So they had to write software, and they created what was called a shopping cart. And I'm sure you've probably seen this in a lot of things, like when you check out on Amazon or whatever. And so by doing that, it allowed them to connect electronically to the credit card places. And then they would come in and say, okay, if you want to be on my site, I'll give you seven days free. But I need your credit card to verify that you're legit. And then if you are, then you get seven days free. After that, if you still want to continue, then we charge you every month. And that's the way it's supposed to be. But what bugs me about politicians and all of this stuff is now they turn around and they campaign for money from us on a website. And they talk about how they're going to eradicate porn and all this other stuff. And, of course, Act 440 here is a perfect example. But they're the same people that turn around and say, I want you to go to my website, and I want you to contribute to my campaign. And what they don't realize, and a lot of other people who shop at Amazon, Walmart, or whatever, mm-hmm. they are Quickly. using porn industry technology in order to take their payment. Wow. Well, that's interesting. Mick, thank you for the call. Um, porn industry technology to pay off politicians. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. We'll look into that. Folks, more to come straight ahead. We're only halfway through Open Phone America. Your calls and more. 833-4-VALDEZ. Give us a call. Looking forward to it. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDES. That's Valdez with an S. 
All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez here with you straight until the top of the hour, keeping you company all night long. Our telephone number is what she just said, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. Getting to your calls momentarily. I see we got calls from all across the nation pouring in, and I just want to cover a couple of things because there's so many topics. Uh, For those of you who've heard about this guy that's all over social media, his name's Andrew Tate, Um, looks like they're keeping him in jail. Um, after losing an appeal, a document from the judge who instated the 30-day detention wrote that the possibility of them evading investigations cannot be ignored and the suspects could leave Romania. So they are um, keeping them in jail, both Andrew Tate and his brother Tristan, who are suspected on some charges of um, sex trafficking, I believe is what they were charged with. And they ran a business. Uh, He's a former professional kickboxer, but ran a business where he would pose as a model that people would see online to build relationships with vulnerable men, and uh, they would tip these women and, you know, up to and including, you know, giving their entire inheritance, which we talked about a little bit last week. So that's just an update on that story. Now, the story I want to get into real quickly here is that a federal judge in West Virginia has upheld a state law that's preventing male athletes who identify as female from participating in female sports. Now, I'm wondering, will it stop male athletes that identify as male? If I say, hey, I'm male and I identify as male, but I want to play on the girls' team, because, you know, that was pretty specific language. But biological males are blocked from competing in women's school sports in West Virginia. And that's just me being facetious. But good for them. And it's crazy that you have to get to this point where you have to make this distinction say, no, you know what? Look, if you were born a male, then, uh, then that's that. And I, there was a clip of audio. I don't have it to play it for you tonight. Uh, but it was a professor in a, in like a, you know, one of those kind of amphitheater styled, um, lecture halls in, in, on a college campus. And one student who appears to be from my perspective, someone that is, um, transsexual, uh, says to the teacher, uh, what about other people that have uteruses like like you know, trans, queer, and non-binary, and goes down the list? And, and the teacher just basically looked at him and said, look, there's only male and female. That's it. Either you, either you can have babies or you can't. And, and, and that's what we're talking about here. And the whole class was up and literally up in arms. Like they got out of their seat and started waving their arms and flailing. It was really an interesting video. And but it's a great clip of audio. Maybe I'll have it for you for tomorrow. But it was just interesting to see that that's what's going on in college campuses. And then I'm seeing the story here about biological males being blocked from competing in women's sports in West Virginia, and that uh, federal court upheld this um, state ruling. So that's where we are on that. Let us uh, continue on our little trip here across America, open phones across America. Again, that phone number, 833-482-5337 or 833, the number 4-VALDES, V-A-L-D-E-S, Valdez with an S. Now, uh, and I'm, by the way, I'm on at Rich Valdez on all of the social media, and I've been uh, sharing those articles. If you want to take a look at the articles we're talking about, they're on my social media as well. Let us go to Robert in Charleston, South Carolina, WTMA. Welcome. Welcome, sir. I, I just wanted to say that, you know, 
um, a, a suicide line is, 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 an, is an act of desperation. It's almost as bad as having to call the police. What you really need is a system like in Germany, where you have a sozialpädagogische Mitarbeiter, that means a social pedagogical employee of the, of the, the yeah. social let me, pedagogical Let me ask you something, uh, Robert. Um, do, do you still live in Germany or no? I moved out of there um, 17 and a half years ago. Why, why did you leave? To, because my, I felt that my mom needed me. Um, you know, she was getting older, and, um, you know, when you get older, sometimes you need a little bit of help. So I just figured... Yeah, no, I, I, I took care like, of both of my parents as well. I totally get it. I just... I, I've, I've heard you mention how great Germany was in the past, and I'm just wondering why you don't live there versus here. Uh, but th- that was just my own curiosity. So, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Social help hotline. So basically, if people have problems with life, before they get to saying, hey, I want to end my life, they could call and kind of get, like, therapy. Um, and, and have that uh, as a, a service. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, n- not a bad idea at all. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Let's go a little further north to, to uh, let's see, is that North Carolina or is that uh, Missouri? Yeah, let's go to Missouri. Let's go to Mary in, looks like, northwestern Missouri on KMA. Welcome, Mary. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hi, Rich. It's good to talk to you. I was Likewise, calling about the uh, Louisiana. Oh, yeah, um, Louisiana law. Mm-hmm. You know these people that access pornography—they're not going to give it up. So you know they can go to Directv or Dish or other sites. Right. You know, well, yeah, television. there's a workaround. Sure, but I'm thinking. Um, I guess you're, you're probably right on that. But I, I was just thinking, you know, people who who are. I think using internet porn or using it because they're thinking this is anonymous. I can go here and go there and do whatever. But I think once you got to be like, here's my driver's license number with my address and my date of birth. And uh, I think people are going to be a little less inclined to do so. And again, that's just my thinking. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but I I just think it's interesting. Uh, And it's also more interesting that you're, they're going to require an ID for porn but you still don't need an ID to vote, which I think is just remarkable. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think you're right. There will p- be people that say, hey, look, I'm going to figure out a way to get around this, whether it's uh, streaming it off my TV rather than streaming it on my phone or my laptop or my desktop or whatever. Uh, not not a bad point. And I think that's the point you're making. Am I right? Well, yeah. And, and also they might steal somebody else's driver's license and use it. Ah, well, now there's an interesting one, right? Right, especially if these are underage users, right? Because the first study I read was the Fox News piece. I think it's right here. 73% of teenagers surveyed said that they've consumed pornography and the average age of first consumption was 12 years old. So yeah, 73% of these users here, uh, of these teens that were surveyed, are saying they're under 12. So if you have a majority of kids that are under 12 and then an even... Uh, I don't know if it was higher. Let's see, 15% of teenagers were under 10. Uh, yeah, what are they doing? Stealing their parents' driver's license, their parents' uh, credit card. Who knows? Uh, like, does it make things better or worse? I don't know. I don't know if it's a deterrent or not, uh, but I think you raise an interesting point, Mary. Um, do, do you think this gets instituted in other states? Do other states jump on board, or is Louisiana on their own here? Well, I think they need to find another way, maybe a fingerprint or 
you know, face recognition instead of driver's licenses, because that will put people in jeopardy. If you lose your wallet, who's who's accessing pornography in your name? Wow. Interesting point. And you know what? Both I get your point, and I think my opposition to it would be, well, um, I I don't necessarily want to give anybody my fingerprint or my facial scan. And and I've had to on certain occasions. So, I, you know, I get it. You know, like uh, there's uh, health clubs that you can go to where you, you use a finger scan to get in as your membership card, which I don't really like. But that's the way they do it. There's also, uh, you know, cell phones, cell phones that now require you to to scan your face and even certain websites. I think I was on one of the money transfer websites the other day and it said, oh, to secure your account, we need to, um, you have the option of using, you know, your password or using facial recognition if you, if you know, like to unlock your phone, which I don't like to use. Um, and I was like, I'm not using it on my own cell phone, let alone using it on this website. But I just thought it was interesting that that was what they were requiring. And my pushback on that is, I don't want all these people to know all that information, to have my fingerprint, to have my face. Because the minute that they do, look what they did with Twitter. Twitter took all the information that they had saved on there, and the government came and said, oh, can you sell us that information? And they bought the information from Twitter, and boom, there you go. Now the government has all your information, and it's and it's in a roundabout way. It's kind of legal. So, yeah, the last thing I want is for some porn company you know, if, if we can't trust Twitter, you think you can trust the porn people? I think that would be out of hand. But excellent points. I appreciate the conversation. Mary in northwestern Missouri on KMA, thank you so much for your call. Much appreciated. And there is more to come straight ahead. I don't want anybody to go anywhere. Don't move a muscle. I am Rich Valdez at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And keep the calls coming in. I see we've got a call from Jersey in the building. Jersey, my neck of the woods. Plus, we got North Carolina and more people calling in. 833-4-VALDEZ is the number. Uh, it's busy when you call. Just call back. We'll, uh, we're trying to filter through these as quickly as we can. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, and we're uh, discussing everything we discussed tonight with you all. Open phones across America. Open phone America. One of my favorites here. I say that all the time, but it's true. Um, it's like a long-lost staple of talk radio that's that's slowly disappearing from a lot of uh, stations and a lot of places, but not here on America at Night, we are preserving the open phone America format. People are going to get to call in. We're going to get young people calling in. We're going to get old people calling in. We're getting everybody calling in. I don't care if you're sleeping. Wake up and call in because I think it's it's uh, one of the few things that, that still exists where you can really jump on this, like, American party line and, and join this national conversation. It's, it's so different from Twitter, which I also like, and all of the other social media, Facebook. Great ways to connect with people all over the place, but none of them are as... Um, as uh, synchronized as talk radio, in my opinion. Anyway, uh, the beverage giants, Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, are under preliminary investigation at the Federal Trade Commission over potential price discrimination. Mm-hmm. And they're using an old law, this old law that prohibits suppliers from offering better prices to larger retailers at the expense of their smaller competitors. 
The largely dormant 1936 law is aimed at promoting a level playing field between small retailers and large chain stores. So the um, FTC is now uh, coming after Coke and Pepsi in this new federal probe. And I find it interesting, again, because my initial reaction to this is while they try to make it sound like we're looking out for you, I'm thinking I'm not paying more. That's one of the few things I haven't seen a ton of inflation on, maybe a little bit on some of the canned you know, packages, but it's not gone up at most of the restaurants I've been to when I buy a can of soda or a bottle of soda. I don't see a, a drastic increase in price there. Thank God. It's one of the, let's say at least by the can, it's been somewhat recession-proof. Um, when you buy multiple cans, I've seen an imp- increase in the 12-packs the and whatnot. But my bottom line here is when I was told about the story, my, my reaction was, my goodness, the, this federal government will go after anybody making anything and blaming you for the price to always avoid inflation, to always say, no, 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 it's not because of inflation. It's not because they're paying more to transport this stuff because gas costs more. No, it's because they're the bad guys. They're price gouging you at Coke and Pepsi. And I think that's ridiculous. But again, that could just be me being, you know, lacking uh, lacking the trust of, uh, of this administration. But we will see. Let us um, continue our calls. We've got, let's see here. Mm-hmm. Let's go to Denise in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Denise, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hi. Uh, I just have to say that um, I'm almost thoroughly disgusted with um, the fact that America has um, allowed mental illness to go rampant, meaning there's a male and there's a female. And if you want to say LGBTQ, that's okay with you, but it's mental Mm -hmm. illness. Um, In addition, in another couple of days, they'll add another couple of designations and a couple more letters of the alphabet. Um, But for all intent and purpose, I'm 73 years old, so going to be 73 in a couple of days. And I I was in the military uh, for a long time. And we had gay people in the military. Oh, thank you. We had gay people in the military. Um, It wasn't blatant. Uh, they didn't like, you know, flaunt it. And um, I have dual residency between Fort Lee and Atlantic City. And no matter where I go, I see, you know, everything is like in your face. Um, everybody wants to, uh, this is a very small minority of the population that is doing this. But let's put it this way. If you come from a mother, you came from a mother and a father, period. End of story. And it's just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you know, I have a 42-year-old son, and he thinks the same way as I do. I'm glad he does. I think I, I, I trained him well. I trained him well. But I just, uh, I don't know, I just, I, and I, you know, um, I live in two places. One is very rural in South Jersey. Yeah. Even though you say Atlantic City, a couple, couple of miles away, it's very rural. And then Fort Lee is just the opposite. But um, sure. Washington I, I Bridge. no matter where I go. What's that? Yeah. I said, you're right there by the Washington Bridge. And, you know, Denise, I think you raise an interesting point, uh, which is, you know, the way we got to where we are is the activists, uh, those within the left and really is the left within academia that said, you know, we need to affect things. And how do we how do we make this change? How do we get gender dysphoria from being considered something that was on the diagnostic uh, statistical manual, the DSM four? I think they're up to five now uh, from being considered a mental illness to being something that's more of a um, gender identity 
rather than, you know, some sort of crisis. And, and that was the first step was, you know, getting doctors to sign on board to, to this crazy. In my opinion, it's crazy. Uh, and I think there's doctors that would, you know, maybe not use the same words I'm using, but that would agree that this is um, junk science, pseudoscience, you know, s- snake oil salesmanship. And ultimately, you've got children and, and there's a woman out there, Chloe Cole. I think we've invited her on the program. I'm not sure if she can do late night or not, but uh, we've played some audio of her and in a press conference she did where she said it was my parents who were basically threatened and kind of almost blackmailed in her opinion that they said, if you don't get your kid the help that they need, the gender affirming care, which basically means if we don't remove uh, her breasts through a double mastectomy, if we don't uh, take aggressive action with puberty blockers, then she may go and kill herself. And the doc, the doctors convinced the parents that, Hey, do whatever you got to do. Let's help our kid. We, you know, we'd rather have a, a, a living son than a dead daughter. And that's what they opted for. So I think you're right. It's definitely crazy. And, and we have to fight against that type of crazy and protect our children. Thank you, Denise. I have our producer shouting in my ear, telling me, let's go to the break. So I will do that, but we will come right back to your calls and more. It's America at Night with me, Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, welcome back. We have very limited time because the radio people are mean to me and they don't give me another hour. But listen, we're going to continue. Let's go to Oregon all the way uh, on the West Coast. David in Pilot Rock, Oregon, welcome. You got about a minute. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I've been listening to you for quite some time. You were a breath of fresh air. Um, oh, you, you. Your, your, your knowledge and your fluidity with handling people is just phenomenal. I just wanted to make a very brief one. I was in the Marine Corps. I was in Vietnam, 6768. Oh, well, thank you for your service, underground. Appreciate Thank it. you, sir. It's nice to be home, believe me. It's Semper Fi, all you old grunts out there. But, uh, yeah, when Johnson, the, the gentleman that you had on, on earlier, when, when Johnson DC'd the uh, bombing, mm-hmm. uh, one night we were sitting out. And we could hear tanks. Contiana is where we were, way up north. It was above Quezon. Um, we were 42 miles from the DMZ, and we could hear tanks clanking. Um, and we could smell what the little man was cooking sometimes when the wind blew just right. And that's something you never, ever forget. And then we hear that he stopped the bombing. Um, all those people should have brought up in charges. I mean, we, we, we hated Johnson more than we hated the bad guys. That's a simple fact. And uh, other than that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm sure I'm not the only one who was out there. Um, I, I, anybody in America wants to see what happened, go back and see the wall in D.C. There it is. Wow. Thank you, sir, very yeah. much. Thank you very much for your work, Thank sir. Thank you, David. I appreciate your kind words and your service. And, yeah, for putting it in that, framing it in that light. Because, you know, uh, there's some that say critics will say, and uh, people take exception to that. But, yeah, I think you put it out there right, what what Johnson and McNamara did and, and the way that you were on the ground, the way you felt, uh, that's something I couldn't get, get, have gotten out of a history book, so I thank you for that. Anyway, more to come mañana. Hasta la próxima. Until the next time, America, take care, good night, and God bless. And remember, subscribe to the podcast as well. All right. 
Be well. I'm Rich Valdez. We're doing it again tomorrow. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.